هنا ثلاثة كاتور هو هاي هو هي كراني بموت تايم عمرنا هو تايكي لايكي تايم مريني ميرام رانا نهوا هو ناتوكي ماتفاولو تواكا هو ناتيهيني تيوي هو ناتيهيني تهابو نموت تايم تيمراي هو ستايسي فوقي هو راني تيرا كي تهابو هيا هاو هو ازاي تابي تاما Ko sen hina rea hai no rea tēnā kaitai, tēnā kaitai, tēnā kaitai. My name is Sam Hinari. I was just kind of going through my pipi hale, which basically just is a bit of a background as to where I'm from. It's my wife Stacey over there, I was saying, who's currently pregnant. June, next month.
And in the middle of the supermarket, whipped off the airport, and that was the last we saw of him. But I mean, amazing later on, we did find he'd gone to America with his wife and was doing well in America. But that was kind of my, kind of my first kind of introduction to, to different cultures was this guy Clinton. It was a great impact on my life. Um, as a church in East Grimsley, which is where we were from in the UK, we did a lot of uh, kind of, we we're very kind of cultures focused, and it was really great. I remember there was one time we were praying for a man in Israel called Saeed. And Saeed, he was a soap maker, and he used to put little Bible verses into his soap and smuggle it around in different parts. And uh, he kind of, he got picked up one time um, by the Palestinian authorities and put in jail. And uh, he was sentenced to death because this wasn't, he was a, he'd have his feet, he'd be tied upside down, he had his feet beaten up all the time, so he couldn't walk. And sentenced to death in this kind of Palestinian um, jail. And we would, as a church, we'd send food and money to his family over in Israel just to try and support them. Um, and it was amazing, we just prayed all the time for this family, and then on the, the morning, I think it was early in the morning of the day he was duly executed, the Israeli army broke into the Palestinian camp and he got set free. And I think Dad will tell you the story of how he received a phone call at some crazy hour in the night from a payphone in Israel, from this guy Saeed saying, thank you so much for what you've done for my family and for praying for me. So this is kind of what, kind of the surroundings that I kind of grew up in, which has been very kind of outwards and nations focused, and Dad, he'd go to Albania, this was back in Albania, it was a very war-torn country. Um, I think Dad said that when he flew into Albania one time, the airport had changed hands like two or three times that day between different armies. So it was a very kind of war-torn area. And I remember very, very clearly when Dad came back, he did not allow me to buy a toy AK-47, and I didn't know why. And I was so devastated <laughs> that I really wanted this toy. Obviously, he'd just been in this kind of nation where some really bad things had been done with him. So, then I kind of grew up, I kind of, whenever people would talk about nations or we do prayer for nations, I always get really excited by that and have different words over my life about being involved in nations. <coughs> and one thing that was quite interesting was that the first time I met Stacey, my wife, was um, we were kind of, I met her walking home, I won't go into that story now, it's a bit embarrassing for me. <laughs> we ended up having a chat, having a chat, and something that was really kind of on her heart also was the fact that she also wanted to go to different nations as well. So for me, I was like, wow, this baby's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so then uh, Stacey felt a, a, a god called to Zambia, and we were very passionate about going to Zambia. It kind of fell through, and we ended up with uh, Cambodia in our hearts and a trip to Cambodia. Now, before we went to Cambodia, um, we went up to our Moroi, which is in Wotato, about 20 minutes south of Paihia, which is uh, where Waitangi is. And it was my papa, his, um, my dad's dad, his, um, the unveiling of his tombstone. So this is the first time I'd really been to El Moroi. And uh, I kind of went with the expectation of, well, maybe, maybe something amazing will happen here. Maybe I'll be able to reconnect with something that I don't really know a whole lot about. Um, and I was quite excited about going up there, to be honest. Um, so we went up there, did all that. As I left, I came out and it was just, I, I left, and as we left, I remember turning the station saying, this, this Maori stuff, or probably this Maori stuff, is not for me. It's just, I came away so kind of disheartened by it. And I just thought, I don't understand what they're saying. Um, the way they do things is very differently up there to what I'm used to. And I kind of left really disappointed, to be honest, and just thought, well, that's kind of, at least I know now that that's kind of one door in my life, kind of close. <laughs> so that was actually the weekend before we left for Cambodia. So we and Stacey went to Cambodia and got to some really amazing things in our lives in this time in Cambodia. Lots of 
we really struggled with some things and we really thrived with some things, but as a time we'll always look back really fondly. Um, now, after we went to Cambodia, we, we took a little holiday over to the UK to see family. And there I read a book by a man called Dave Devinish. Now, Dave Devinish is a kind of just a big leadership figure in our group of churches in the UK. Um, he's very involved with cross-cultural ministry into the Islamic world and into the Russian world. Now, he wrote a book called Fathering Leaders Motivating Mission. Now, if you haven't read it, I hope you to write that, that name down, Fathering Leaders Motivating Mission, because it is a book that will just majorly stir you cross-culturally and in a leadership kind of way as well. Now, I remember reading this book, um, and I read one chapter of this book, and it's, it's one little paragraph in the book, and it was a story where David Edmonds went to a certain country, and he was preaching in this country, and as he was preaching, he began to draw to the end of his sermon, and as he began to draw to the end, two, one or two busloads of people pulled up outside where he was preaching, and all these people came forward and sat on the front rows, right towards the end of his preach. Now, David, you know, as any good preacher does, sees all these few people come in and probably goes hard out with the gospel straight away uh, and preaching that. And he, as he was going and, and really preaching, he began to realise that people weren't listening to him. And he thought, well, this is strange. Why, why are they here? Why are they not listening to me? And as he got to the end of his preach, all these people rushed the stage with these water bottles um, full of water. And they began to rush and they said, Dave, can you um, pray your blessing over our drink bottles so that we can hang them up in our doorways and so that when we walk through our doors we'll be getting good luck every time we do that. <laughs> Which is obviously to kind of ask me to find very superstitious when we find that, well, I'm not sure about that. And I remember the first, when I read this, and I read that story, I immediately thought, Oh, that's typical, that kind of thing, isn't it? They've all said like that. And I just, as I thought this, instantly I just thought, oh, what am I, what am I thinking? Just immediately just judging this entire people group. Um, and you know, I thought this was, this was before Cambodia, this was afterwards, and I was supposed to be Mr. Cultural Sensitive. <laughs> and immediately I thought, oh no, and it wasn't, I just want to make this because it wasn't a racist thought that I thought, I don't think that many people are racist in the ways that they think, that I didn't hate this people group. But it was it's a different word that you use, it's called ethnocentric. And what that means is it means when you're judging another culture and comparing it to your own, what you usually call as a superior culture. And so that's what I was doing with this, this people group. And I was, came up, I was so devastated with what I'd done. I just thought, well, you know, what can you do? It was crazy. It was just God's really making that aware to me. That um that whole thing of, of judging other cultures. You know, we're very like, oh we're not racist. And you, you might not be racist, but you're being ethnocentric, it doesn't it doesn't hold on so it was quite good. <laughs> good, to, good to be made aware of that. Then, while we were kind of over in the UK, I was um, on Facebook Messenger with Jack quite a bit of the time. And Jack had a, there was a conference in Rotorua, which was, I don't know if you guys have heard of a lady called Kim Walker Smith. She's a kind of a big worship leader in Bethlehem Church. We sing a lot of their songs here. Um, and she was going to be at this conference, this worship conference. And so Jack said, Do you want to go? I said, well, I haven't got a whole lot of money. I'd like to go, but financially, I don't think I can. And then Jack won tickets to this conference. And I don't know if you guys are aware of this. I might say it before, I'm not sure if you're aware. But Jack actually won tickets to this conference with, it was a Send In Your Song. And do you know the song? That, I love you, I love Yeah, he won the tickets off the back of that song. So, oh, that was awesome. I think he was So that was really exciting. So me and Jack, we, we went off to this conference and we were ready to be inspired as worship leaders. And we were, the conference was amazing, like the worship was great, but I think the thing that we both 
I'm speaking on behalf of Jeff without talking about it. <laughs> He's not ex, that's good. The thing that we took away from this conference was not necessarily the worship factor of the conference, even though that was great. But what we took away from this conference was just a real heart for cross-culture and multiculture, and especially Te Ao Māori, with the Māori worldview of doing things. Now, this was obviously very uh, strange, considering I thought I'd closed the door on that part of my life and didn't really want a whole lot to do with it. Now, there were a few things at this conference that really spoke to us. Uh, one thing in particular was one night of worship. Um, there was a, I'm not sure if you know, a few people here went, but there was a, a small revival in a place called Kawaro, which is, I'm not entirely sure where, but somewhere up uh, this tiny little kind of pet village. Um, and God began to, there was healings on the streets, massive revival in this tiny little place called Kawaro. It was quite exciting. And, um, I think Nat went and uh, Mark Gemmell and Lonnie went as well. I said, that's his name, and, and so they went to this place just to check it out. They're unaware. They don't tell you that But a lot of these kids from this place from Kamarau came down to this worship, uh, this worship conference. Now, we were in the middle of the worship. And I remember Kimball Smith was leading worship, so that was pretty amazing. Um, everyone was worshipping. And suddenly, in the middle of the worship, these kids that were being about maybe 15, 16, break into a haka just kind of spontaneously in the middle of the worship. Now, for me, I just for some reason I just started crying and I had no idea why. So which was really strange. So for me personally, when I, I don't know if you know, but sometimes when the Holy Spirit touches people, you know, some people will shake, some people might cry, some people might fall over. Then the Holy Spirit might impact people in different ways. For me personally, I've never felt anything like that. I'm the one guy who when a whole group of people falls over because the Holy Spirit I'm just like standing in the back of the room and feeling like Push further and further back people <laughs> get over the So for me to actually feel something um, spiritual as this was happening was quite amazing. And I had no idea what was happening. It was like my heart was breaking, but my head was going, what the heck's going on? What's happening here? I was just so confused by the moment. Um, and there was a few other kind of different cultural things that happened on that camp, which I don't have time to go into now, but really began to open us up to it. And uh, me and Jack both left that place just so just amazing. And we're not really knowing what to do with it, did we? All we knew was that we learned the song way to a tough one, so we're going to play that as, kind of, as far as we've got. Now, kind of from there, we began to do a few different things in the church. We began to experiment with trying to do a bit more Māori, because we didn't really know what was happening, but we knew that it impacted our hearts, and we didn't really know why. So we thought, well, if it's impacting us, let's, let's just try stepping out of it. So, we began to learn Te Reo Māori, um, we began to sing Wairua Tapu and a few other songs that came off a, a certain album, and uh, we began to push into that. And another thing we began to push into is I began to ask a few different people from different nations in our church. I used to say, because this whole thing of ethnocentrism, of me judging other cultures, had really stood out to me, I, mean, I asked a few people in the church, I said, in our church, do you feel as if we are being judgmental towards you or prejudiced towards you? as a foreign people in, in our country. And, and this couple who I talked to, they actually said, yeah, we do feel that sometimes. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Because we all know us want to be racist or anything, but people are, are feeling judged, different cultures are feeling judged amongst us. And so we began to explore that in different ways as to how we can make people feel at home, and then a whole big sense of home began to stand out for us as a church. So we began to look at things like two around the YY, and just a sense of calling. We did a, a study on Parihaka, which was a, a home place for people from any nation that I could have gone to. So that's, that's kind of all I want to share on that for now. That's kind of a bit of a background. So if you're new to our church and are not sure about kind of our journey along that, that's kind of as far as we've got at the moment. 
and we're still very much on this journey. As you can tell, that's kind of like the beginning of a story. There's no ending to it yet, or no middle of it yet. So we're kind of on that, on that journey at the moment. And so we're uh, just beginning to hopefully get out of the beginning of it. Sorry, I'm going to Cool, so I now want to move on to this story here between Ruatara and Samuel Marston. <coughs> now this man here, his name is Ruatara, he's a Ngāpui chief. Um, based in Rangihawa's Bay of Islands. Um, now, this was a time when Pākehā were first beginning to come to New Zealand, beginning to make connections with Māori people, beginning to trade a few different bits and pieces, and so it was very kind of tentative times. Now, at the same time, Māori were really interested in going and seeing this place as to where the Europeans had come from, the Pākehā had come from. So Ruatara, he was one of these guys he had a real heart to go and go to the UK and just check it out and see what was happening. Now this kind of was a bit of a misconception where Ruatara was a rangatira, so he was a chief of one of the Ngāpui Hapu. Now, he kind of, because he was a rangatira or a chief, he kind of saw himself as a uh, as royalty, which is how every rangatira saw himself. So he thought for him to be able to go and see King George of England was a very realistic and opportunistic thing for him to do not realising that the Western way of things work very differently to that. So, Ruatara, he begins his journey over to the UK and basically he gets ripped off the whole way over. He, um, he basically just gets used as, as, as uh, kind of like a worker on the ship and not paid at all really. There's one point where they're travelling and he gets dropped off someplace by Fiji area on just a rock. Him and about seven other guys get dropped off on a rock. And they left there for four months because the ship needs to go back to New Zealand and refill and then come back and get them. So they're there for a good few months, just living off, um, I think it's like seal blood or something like this. And so he's treated terribly. And eventually he makes it over to the UK, still with his hope to see and, and talk to King George. And when he gets over there, the captain of the ship basically says, Look, mate, I know I told you you were going to see King George, but there's no way you're getting off this ship. So Ruikala isn't even allowed to step foot on English soil. He's uh, locked up on the ship instead. Mm. Now, Ruatara, basically, well, the captain of the ship turns around to Ruatara and says, Look, basically, I will, I'll take you back to New Zealand instead. You're not allowed off the ship here, but we'll take you back to New Zealand and I'll give you two muskets for all the work that you've done for us in this past have a lot of takes to get to New Zealand to the UK at that time period, which is pretty good. So, Ruatara gets locked up. Now, this ship begins to sail back to New Zealand, and on this ship is a man called Samuel Marston. Now Samuel Marsden had actually previously met Ruatara, but not very well, I didn't really know him at all. But kind of on the way back, he notices Ruatara, who's really struggling. He comes down with really bad sickness, and Samuel Marsden, oh, so he comes down with a sickness, right, and the captain of the ship just calls him lazy, and so he beats him up all the time. And so he's obviously not going to get better if he's sick, and he's getting beat up and, and left out in the cold all the time. So Samuel Marsden notices this very beat up Ruatara, and he takes Ruatara into his cabin, and basically looks after him and gets him a lot better, because Samuel Marsden knows a little bit about chieftainship in New Zealand. Now at this time, um, historians have said that about this moment where Samuel Marsden kind of saved Ruatara's life, they say that in that moment they shared hope. Now hope is life breath, so they feel that they kind of shared a kind of a spirit about them that they were kind of then linked um, for a linked as a friendship or as a whanaunga kind of linked, linked into family uh, till the day they died, which is quite interesting. So they meet there, they go to Samuel Marsden basically says, well, we're going to drop Ruatara back off in New Zealand because he sees how he's been badly treated. So he wants to make sure 
that he's going to be looked after. But there's a, a big kind of fight in the Bay of Islands at the time involving a ship called the Boyd. Um, well, I won't go into that now, but basically they find it's not safe yet for Ruatanga to go back to the Bay of Islands. And so he stays in Sydney with Samuel Master at Samuel Master's home. Now in this time he begins to learn agriculture, he learns how to speak English, he learns, um, also begins to learn a little bit about Christianity in this time. And kind of in reversal ways, Samuel Master begins to learn to learn Māori, and he begins to learn about the Māori atua, the Māori gods, and the Māori way of life in this time. So in the end, Ruatanga gets, he's allowed to go back to New Zealand, to the Bay of Islands, where he begins to uh, look after the missionaries, he basically says that he'll take them under his wings. There's lots of inter-tribal fighting happening in this time. So he takes, takes uh, the missionaries under his wing, and he begins to pray for this Christmas Day, what we call the famous Christmas Day, first preaching of the Bible, preaching of the Gospel for the first time in good news. So the thing that's amazing about this that I find like lots of historians, they kind of argue, was Ruatara only doing this for the, for the muskets, for the trade, for the agriculture? Um, but what's amazing is that Ruatara actually does a lot of this stuff, you know, without receiving payment back. He does a lot of it off his own back. So it's kind of, he does see something in it and begins to prepare for it. So for this um, sermon, for the, the Christmas Day sermon, Ruatara, he's organised all these people from different evenings to be at this sermon, which he didn't have to do. He's kind of because he's seen what a Pākehā service looks like. He begins to, he makes a pulpit and makes rows for people to sit on. So he kind of goes above and beyond. Um, it's amazing kind of the, the friendship that those two have. So seven miles on in eighteen forty, coming from preachers off the back of Luke two verse ten. Behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. Now some historians say that Samuel Martin actually preached this message in Te Reo Māori. Um, some say he didn't, um, but some say because he learnt what Ruatara had said that he preached that in Te Reo Māori, and Ruatara, he then began to translate what the Māori didn't understand, because probably Samuel Martin's Te Reo probably wasn't amazing at the time, um, or there were probably some Pākehā concepts that maybe the Māori wouldn't have understood, so Ruatara began to translate those to people. Now, from that time there, there is no revival or not a whole lot of people getting saved in New Zealand for the next 20 years from that moment. Which is a, it's very depressing so if you're a missionary working into that time and 20 years later, still say, maybe I'll be depressed after two weeks later to be honest. But 20 years later they don't see anything. And in that time period is a very big war known as the Musket Wars. Now the Musket Wars were started by a Ngakui chief called Honihika and he basically he was the first guy in New Zealand to get muskets, so which makes a very unfair fight against Taiha and Pasi So he begins to make his way down to the North Island, uh, basically taking a whole load of different tribal areas and taking a whole load of prisoners back to his home in the Bay of Islands. Now what's amazing is that what you find as well in the Bible is that we find there's a lot of situations where really bad things happen, <coughs> but we know in our lives as well that God is able to take these bad things that happen and turn them into good, isn't it? And we hear the stories of Joseph, where Joseph is locked up by his brothers, thrown down a well and sold off. But in the end, Joseph is the one to save all of Egypt. And his own brothers are there, kind of in front of him, begging for food without realising it's him. Now, I believe that the Muscle Wars is one of these moments where God is able to turn something horrific and something really bad and turn it into his good. Because you see, all these, um, all these prisoners, or these hostages by Ngākui at the time, they got taken up to the Bay of Islands, which is where all the missionary stations were. So they were constantly hearing the good news and being preached to. And as we find that from that moment on, when the, when the people who are prisoners or hostages get let go, 
That's when we begin to see the gospel really spread throughout New Zealand. And I find that really exciting that God has had this plan the whole time. And as that continues, we begin to hear all these amazing stories of different people. You know, we hear stories of Tamihana Taropa, Hanamatini, Tafifi from Ngātatoa here, how they were impacted so intensely by the gospel that they were persecuted by their own family in Waikanae. And they just still went for, for God and said, you know, basically their family said, we're going we're gonna to burn all your books and burn all your stuff. This is stuff that's a whole load of rubbish. But they said, that's fine. We're, they all go to Kapiti Island and they're doing almost like little connect groups on Kapiti Island, just learning more about God and, and reading the Bible and praying. And you think, man, the gospel's really impacting people. And there are times when Pākehā missionaries went to different parts of New Zealand, and in those times, they went to preach the gospel to people that already knew the gospel, because Māori had already taken the gospel there ahead of them. So this is real revival happening in New Zealand. This is really exciting. So that's what I'm going to end that story there. And so from there, we're going to ask ourselves, I just missed a whole lot of pictures. That's right. From there, we're going to go along with, so for us now today, why are we pushing on with Te Māori? Why are we pushing on with the Māori worldview? Church. Why are we doing this? Now the first point I want to make is that the reason we're doing it is because we want to understand and we want in our church more of the Māori worldview. That we know that different cultures offer different worldview and there are things in Māori, Te Māori that we really want to learn as a church. So for example there's a few different kind of concepts we've been learning about. So I remember Nat talked to you, mentioned Whanaungatanga last week which is a Māori worldview. And the word Whanaungatanga means relationship, kinship, sense of family, connection, a relationship through shared experiences and working together which provides people with a sense of belonging. Don't we want that in our church to be a church where people who, who don't know us can come in and feel whanaungatanga amongst us, they can fuck a whanaungatanga with us, come into this amazing relationship with us. That's what I want our church to be. I want it to be a sense of family connection for people to come into. That's what we want in our church, don't we? Which provides people with a sense of belonging. Yeah. Should we say that out of Is healing right there? <coughs> Another kind of concept we've been looking at is the concept of Tūranga Waiwai, which we mentioned probably a few years ago now. I haven't really looked back on much. But Tūranga means standing place, Waiwai meaning feet. I've kind of got a picture up here of um, the Moraia and Takapuwai here, because that might be Tūranga Waiwai to some people here. But Tūranga Waiwai are places with, where we feel especially empowered and connected. They're our foundation, our place in the world, and our home. You know, we can take these words and bring them into the church because they begin to open up so much more meaning for us, don't they? So we can begin to say, well, what happens when we think when we talk about how Jesus is our two and a while? What does that mean? If Jesus is a place where we feel empowered, you know that Jesus gives us power to be able to get through things of his healing, of his prophecy, that there's power in the name of Jesus, isn't there? Power for us to get through things. It says that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We are connected through Jesus, aren't we? We're connected to the Father. Jesus says that the way to the Father is through me. The way to God is through Jesus Christ. He's our foundation. Jesus tells a parable about two houses, one built on sand and one built on rock. And you know that if we built our house on rock, which is Jesus, which is his pure foundation, then our house is going to stay standing, isn't it? Yes. That God will, will protect us and look after us. He's our place in the world and our home. Something really interesting I found, I've said this before, but when me and Stacey went to Cambodia, a completely different culture to what we're used to, we still felt at home right there in the church, in the worship times and in the preaching. 
Mm. Now, why is that? Well, I believe it's because Jesus has made us home in me. Mm. And he's made us home in them in Cambodia mm. as well. Amen. So we go over there and we hear it and we just feel at home straight away. Mm. <coughs> uh, I just want to kind of give a, a big, I'll kind of big up some guy called Aaron Hardy in a church called Lincoln Z. Now, Lincoln Z, they just produced an album called Kikaha, which is kind of a bilingual album, half mile in part English. And, um, He's a, a very amazing guy, this guy, Aaron Hardy, because he's a Pākehā guy who speaks almost fluent to do And now he refuses on this album, he says, he refuses to write any of the lyrics for the Māori parts of this album. And the reason he does this is he says, because if I write the lyrics to the parts of the Māori album, then it's just going to be a Pākehā worldview, but in a different language. And what's the point of that? <laughs> so he refuses to do that, and he only says to, to people who are Māori, he gets them to, to write the lyrics for that. So you hear lyrics in the album, which say things like, Tu hia ki te rangi, tu hia ki te tenua, tu hia ki te ngākau, katoa, which is, write it in the sky, write it in the, in the land, write it on the hearts of all the people, and then goes on to say that there is one love in this gospel. Which is a very, not a very kind of a Western way of writing a song. I don't think, if I was writing a song, I'd begin to, to think of those kinds of concepts, but a people who are heavily connected to the, to the land and to the sky and to the elements, well then they did begin to write things like that, don't they? I just want to mention this bit real briefly because I don't fully understand it myself yet. But a reason, another reason that we as a church want to continue to speak and get more involved in Te Ao Māori is because if you are New Zealand Pākehā, then you have an obligation to do. You have an obligation to learn Te Ao Māori without the Māori world you have an obligation to learn Te Ao Māori. Mm. Now, that sounds like a bit of a hard-hitting statement, but I just want to expand on that a little bit. Now, something that I've been learning about recently is a concept called tangata ototiriti, which means person of the treaty. Now, for, if you are a Pākehā New Zealander, or you're born here and identified yourself as a New Zealander, then you can call yourself tangata ototiriti, which means a person of the treaty. That when the treaty was signed and was written, basically that is the grounds in which we have to be New Zealanders. Māori opened up their home as tangata whenua, which means people of the land, and said Pākehā can come in and live alongside us, they want to kind of embrace Pākehā worldview and live alongside these two worldviews. Which I find quite exciting because often in New Zealand we can often think how tangata whenua, meaning people of the land, are the original people and how sometimes there's a sense of we're still visitors, isn't there? That Pākehā are still visitors. You can kind of get that sense sometimes. But do you see how powerful it is that when Māori had come around and said that we can become tangata or tentiriti, that our tūranga waiwai can be New Zealand as well? Don't you find that a very embracing concept, that actually we have the right to be here? Mm -hmm. That Judge Edward Jury, he said this, he said, We must also not forget that the treaty is not just a Bill of Rights for Māori, it is a Bill of Rights for Pākehā too. It is the treaty that gives Pākehā the right to be here. Without the treaty, there would be no lawful authority for the Pākehā presence in this part of the South Pacific. Mm. Our Prime Minister can stand proud in Pacific forums and international forums too, not in spite of the treaty, but because of it. We must remember that if we are the tangata whenua, the original people, then the Pākehā are the tangata tiriti, those who belong to the land by right of the treaty. Now I find it really, I just find it really accepting, isn't it, that Pākehā people can be accepted as tangata or tiriti, or if you come from a different country and you find New Zealand as your home, then that includes you as well. The word Pākehā wasn't originally a, a word about white people, but just a word about foreigners. So that if you are Pākehā to New Zealand, you can call yourself tangata or tiriti. So if you enter and you want to say your tūra, your hepiha, you can say um, 
took me to and all over. And my place to stand in New Zealand is because of the Jubilee Rights Act, which is pretty exciting and really inclusive. But on the other hand, it offers an obligation for us as Pākehā as well, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. That we want to stand alongside that, we want to honour the tribute as well, and we want to do our bit, but we want to, it's up to us to help preserve Te Reo Māori, to preserve Te Ao Māori, um, and that falls on us as well as Pākehā, doesn't it? And that's kind of a responsibility that we need to take as well. I hope that makes sense. I'm still figuring it out for myself. Something we want to make clear as well, I know I'm running out of time, so a few more minutes, is that we, what do we want as a church? What is, the, what is the biblical view of church? It's not Māori and Pākehā, is it? It's not a, a bicultural church. That's never been our aim as a church to be bicultural. But we want to be a multicultural church. Don't we? When, we relate, when we read parts from Revelation, it says, After this I looked out, behold, a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, it doesn't say that they cry out in Māori and Pākehā or Māori and English, do they? They cry in all languages. And I think that's something that's really important. That, that in this verse, it doesn't say, sometimes it's, what, what we can think as Westerners come is we can think that when we get to heaven, we'll all be speaking English, won't we? When we get to heaven. <laughs> I think that's what I thought when we get to heaven, of course I'll be able to start what's happening in English. But we hear stories about the Tower of Babel, and kind of another one of those stories which something bad and God turns into something good, where God splits people up because they've been naughty, and he kind of gives them all different languages. Now, that's something that God has turned into something really good, isn't it? That now, that we have this blessing of these different languages, which is really exciting. Um, you know, it's so funny the way we think, isn't it? That they all used to speak English and God split them up into these other languages. <laughs> And even when we read through Acts 2, which I don't have time to go through now, that when the apostles, the Spirit comes on the apostles, and they begin to preach, and people begin to hear the apostles preaching in their own tongue, don't they? And all these different, all these different tongues, the way time we go through it. But it's not that the apostles preach and everybody begins to understand Hebrew, is it? It's that the apostles begin to preach in different languages. Now, for me, for some reason, it makes sense, and it would almost be easier for everybody to be able to understand Hebrew. But God's love for different cultures and different languages comes through where he says, actually, you guys are going to learn to speak in different languages. Mm. And I find that really exciting. Because what different languages from different cultures do is they offer us a different worldview. And that's what we need in the church. We need different cultures to be able to speak to us in their own language. Now, what that does, I'm just going to come up with a quick example of it, is we have this word love. Now, in Westerners, what we say is when we're in love, we say we fall in love, don't we? Oh, I, fell, I fell in love. When I met Stacey, I fell in love. Oh. I, I didn't have any control over it, I just fell. <laughs> Which means very easily that I can fall out of love, doesn't it? Oh, I just, I just don't love you anymore. I've fallen out of love again. Kind of puts no responsibility on us, does it? Whereas, I can't I never remember what this language is, but they describe love as a painting. 
Now they describe it as love is painting a picture. So what happens? You're painting a picture and you get to a hard bit or you come through a bit that you're struggling with. You take a step back, you reassess the situation, mm. and then you go back through again. It requires work and it requires effort. Mm. Isn't that such a more helpful view of what love is? Just to be able to fall in and out of it. Mm. Now that's what different cultures can provide for us. And that is the exciting thing that different cultures are able to offer us. And you know what? To be a multicultural church is not a want. It's not just something that we want to be as a, multi, as a multicultural church. It's a need. We need to be a multicultural church. Because if we want to understand a full aspect of what God is and a full aspect of what the Bible is, we need different cultures to look on that from their worldview and tell us it from their worldview. Okay. I mean, how crazy is it that the Bible's not even a Western book yet? We think that we know so much about it more than any other culture. It's, a, it's an Arabic book, an Eastern book. And when you know the story of the prodigal son that we've been so closely linked with over the past however many years, that Jesus, who was talking into, into a, a, a Middle Eastern point of view, the, part, that the main part of that story was not about the son or about the father, which are the two points that we've really focused on, isn't it? But when Jesus was talking into a Middle Eastern point of view, the, the main point of the story was that the older brother refused to have uh, his joining with the feast at the end. And that was the culture that Jesus was talking into. So, not that our view is wrong, that's not what I'm saying, but do you see how we need other cultures to be able to, for us to be able to understand what the Bible is saying properly? To be able to understand that. Let's stand up, mate. <coughs> Sorry, I can't even rush through the end bit because I'm not very really time away. But let me say this to finish. As we continue to push on into Te Ao Māori, Māori worldview, as we begin to embrace multicultural worldviews in our church, it will be messy, won't it? It won't be neat and tidy, it will be hard and we'll struggle at certain parts. But that is just the fun of multicultural, by the way. Is that we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we just embrace what God's doing. I remember, I've said this before, but I, I remember having a great conversation with Phil Haddo. And Phil said, Sam, I really want to be welcoming to other cultures. Um, but you know, there's all these different rules that offend certain cultures and these other things. How, how do I do it? How do I be welcoming to every culture without offending any other culture? And I said, Phil, you know, 100%, your heart is just what's right. What Phil had said there kind of summed up what we need to be. We'll never get it 100% right. We're always going to offend people, even in our own culture. But if we know that our heart is for those people, then that's okay, isn't it? If I know that if someone offends me, but I know that they love me and they want what's best for me and they want to see me thrive, then we can work. We can work through this, can't we? We can work through this. We're just going to sing through that song there.